Today, uh, we are in part three, okay, of our pulpit series on the Bible. If you have never read your Bible from end to end, or if you have, but you've taken your Bible in little chunks here and there, and you've never been able to see the big picture of your Bible, I want to encourage you um, uh, because we are doing an 18-part Bible series to cover the entire meta-narrative from creation to apocalypse. And today, we are on part three on resets. Let me do a very quick overview, right? God creates heavens, earth, Adam, Eve, puts them in a garden. The garden is to be like his first temple. He puts the image of God into that temple to reflect and to, and to rule and to reign in God's glory, right? But as you know, Adam and Eve, they fall. They decide for themselves what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong in partaking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And thereafter, creation just seems to go off, right? Off kilter, off center, and it just starts to, all the joints start to loosen and everything starts to go wrong, right? The fallen nature of humanity kicks in, the ground has been cursed and everything starts to collapse. God will eventually bring a, make a covenant and give a promise to one of his men, right? His name is Abraham and through him all the tribes of Israel will come into a knowledge and awareness of this God and some in some seasons they will be faithful, in other seasons they will be faithless and in many seasons there will be a sprinkling of good among the bad. They eventually ask for a king. God says, no, I'm not, I'm your king. Don't ask for a king. I'm your king. They say, no, we want a king. And so God gives them a king. You have Saul, you have David, you have Solomon, and then the kingdom splits into two. You have the southern Judah, northern Israel, right? And the northern kingdom is entirely depraved and corrupt. God sends both kingdoms, prophet after prophet, to woo them back. Say, don't go down the ways of the world. Don't go down the ways of, of, of a Syria and Babylon, the northern kingdom eventually gets, gets attacked by Assyria and they are dispersed to the north forever. The southern kingdom are barely holding on, right, uh, um, or to, 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 to the end of the string. And no amount of prophets can rest and unclog their ears. They eventually get attacked by Babylon and they are brought into exile. The nation collapses. They go into exile and after 70 years, they come back. They come back to re-establish uh, their, their, their living on the land that even until today is contested land and they wait. They wait for what? They wait for a saviour. They wait for a messiah to come to rescue them from all the deadness and the badness and, the, uh, and being oppressed and being uh, uh, pinned down by forces of darkness, right? Eventually, their, their, their wait ends. 
but many of them don't realize the way ends. The way ends with the coming of Jesus on Christmas Day. And this Jesus will grow into an adult um, who establishes the coming of the kingdom. He will say, the kingdom is here and in your midst. He will go on the cross and on the cross he will die carrying the burden and the punishment of the sins of the world. He will go into a tomb. You know, after the third day, he will be resurrected and this resurrection power will be given over to the believers who become the church and the church is today. Every single one of us, we go on in faithful following of this God until the very end at the apocalypse. This, my friends, is the whole story of the Bible. And I will not tire of telling it and I will continue to open my sermons this way and for the rest of the preaching team, they will also be opening their sermons in one way or another in this way so that we know over extended amount of time and prolonged exposure the meta story of the Bible. Today though, we are here and we're going to listen and talk about Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel. Okay, uh, it's Babel. If you are from, if you speak British English, it's Babel. If you speak American English, okay, um, not. Not, not huge on colonialism, but I'm just going to go with Babel, okay? Now, I'm going to rip through the story quite fast, but before that, I'm going to pray, right? Father, today is a day for you to reshape our hearts. Every day is a day for the reshaping of our hearts, but today we are here coming under every one of us, including myself, under the Word, not over it, Lord God. So, Father, we pray um, that as we come under your Word, your goodness, your mercy will reach deep into our hearts. Your very character, your very being will reshape how we are and who we are. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your kindness will flow out of us. Goodness and mercy will be part of who we become. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The text is going to cover Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So this stretch is six chapters, a lot of detail that we won't need to go into. Two very famous stories. One especially famous one, Noah's Ark, right? And the second story, the Tower of Babel, Babel, whichever, right? So it begins with... This little detail, the sons of God mated with the daughters of men. Okay? Now, we don't know who these sons of God are. We know daughters of men is just normal human daughters. Okay? And, and also, at the same time, it says in the text that the Nephilim existed. Who are the Nephilim? So there are going to be lots of little questions here and there. Don't worry, we'll get to them. Okay? What we do know is that during this time, we are just Abraham. Uh, sorry, not Abraham. Adam, Eve, then Cain, right? And Abel, right? Cain kills Abel. And then quite, and then Seth, you know, there are several generations later and here we are, right? We find ourselves in this scenario. Violence, wickedness, and evil is widespread. And God, at this point, decides that He's going to wipe everyone out. Now, just want you to put pause on that for a moment. It is quite scary to think of a God who wants to wipe everything out. Okay? Is this a God that you can love? 
Is this a God that you can trust? Is this a God that you can grow close to, be intimate with? At this point, it seems like a God that you should really fear, right? But we'll, we'll go on. There was one exception though. This exception was Noah, right? Noah was righteous and blameless. And he had three sons. His sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And God tells Noah, build an ark. An ark is a giant ship, right? It's a giant ship. God tells him, build the ark. And he gives, them, gives him the specs on how to build it. It shall be this big, this long, this high, this everything. The stern shall be like this. You know, the, that and that shall be like that. And he gives him all the specs. So Noah is going to start building the ark. God tells Noah, there will be a flood. I'm going to send a flood to destroy all of all, all, all flesh that exists on the earth, right? And so everything's going to be wiped out. God tells Noah, enter the ark. When the ark is done, enter the ark and bring with you animals, right? And I know most of us, when we think about Noah's ark, you just see pairs of animals, right? Just pairs of every single animal. Um, uh, snow leopard, one pair, right? Um, uh, goat, one pair. Mountain goat, one pair, right? Um, actually, if you look at it properly, um, it's one pair of every unclean animal and it's seven pairs of every clean animals, okay? Um, so, um, the dove, for example, will have seven pairs going in, right? Um, your sheep, your lamb, your whatever it is, you know, the things that they would use for animal sacrifice in the temple later, right? Those is actually seven pairs, right? So, they all enter, right? They all enter and then the Bible says that the heavens poured with water, the, the, the groundwater breaks out, okay? So it's not just rain from the top, right? It's groundwater breaking out as well. And so the earth was flooded. Everything outside the ark dies. And after a hundred, and the rain pours for 40 days, right? After 150 days, after the rain, okay, God makes the waters subside. As the water subside, they get moored on the mountain. It is Mount Ararat, right? Noah eventually sends a raven and then sends a dove out to test if the treetops have already been unsubmerged and have already appeared, emerged, right? Um, and eventually they discover that, okay, dry land is around. The trees have already emerged from the subsiding of the waters. They all come out, humans and animals and all. Noah builds an altar and worships God and they sacrifice all the extra of the pairs of clean animals that they brought in, right? God commissions them because they're, re they're restarting human existence. Eh? God commissions them to be fruitful and to multiply. The same commission He gave to Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and to spread out across the earth, right? He gives them animals for food. So before this, they want a plant-based diet. And here he says that all the animals will fear you, for you shall have them as food. And so now they are going to start eating meat. And at this point, there's no more, there's no kosher laws yet, okay? At this point, it's like, it's all fair game. So I was just asking myself, um, did, did all these guys eat pork? Possibly, right? Did even Abraham eat pork? Possibly. Even Isaac and Jacob eat pork? Possibly. The, the kosher laws only came in 
from Moses' time onwards, okay? But let's not get distracted by that. They get food. We're going to get food later. That's, that's later Punya's story, all right? Um, promises them. God promises them He's never going to do this again. And what is the this He's not going to do? He's never going to flood the whole earth and destroy the whole earth in this way again. He gives them the rainbow as a promise. Every time you see the rainbow, it's an assurance of my promise. Now, after this, Noah becomes a man who tills the land. He plants a vineyard. He drinks of its wine. One day, he gets totally plastered. He's naked in his tent, being drunk. He has three sons. His, his, uh, his middle son, Ham, right? Um, goes into the tent, sees him naked, okay? And then doesn't do anything about it, okay? And goes out and talks about it to his brothers. Now, it's not clear what's going on here. What we do and can see is that he doesn't seem to be very bothered about his father, uh, uh, father's dis discreetness, okay? And maybe, even maybe, he might be talking about it to his brothers in a way that humiliates the father. What we do know is that the brothers uh, um, take it very seriously. They take a cloth, they walk backwards into the tent to cover their father without looking at him. Such discreet sons. Good sons to have, right? And, and of course, the genealogy of Noah uh, um, is told where they spread out um, to distant places. The whole earth now at one point, has only one language. They settle in a particular land called Shina, right? And they start building a city in Shina. In fact, they say that it's not good enough to just build a city. We're going to build a tower at the center of this city and it's going to reach up into what's called the heavens. Actually, it's just the skies, okay? It's not a very spiritual thing. They just want to reach into the heavens and they name this city Babel. Okay, and Babel is in some ways a proto-Babylon, okay? And in fact, in some of your Bible translations, um, you will see Babel, in this case, being referred to as Babylon as well. I know the CSB has chosen to render Babel as Babylon. So thinking about the two cities as the same thing. One, of course, more ancient than the other. Okay, now, um, this is so that they want to build this city. They want to build this tower to make a name for themselves. They want to get famous and they don't want to spread everywhere. You know, they were told to spread everywhere. They don't want to spread everywhere. They want to stay there. Now, God does not approve of this, okay? Because this violates some of the things that God wants from them. So God goes down and confuses their language. He gives them all new languages, okay? So that now they're failing to communicate with one another properly. Now, we all have the same language and sometimes in our workplaces, we also still can't communicate with one another properly. And people make all kinds of Like you tell them do A And they do like Q and X and Y And they're like What? Are we speaking the same language? They really spoke different languages And so they had to abandon the project at Babel Right? And they all dispersed with different languages to different parts, starting, of course, thereafter, individual language, culture groups, and what we assume is now the different ethnicities and, and, and local cultures in this world. Now, there are similarities between the story of Noah at the start and the story of Babel at the end. Both, now Noah involves widespread violence, right? Widespread violence. You're going to see that in a moment. In Babel, you see people uniting, widespread uniting of people to cluster and build, sorry about this, okay? Cluster and build a city and a tower and to not spread 
out. In Noah, God sends a flood. He wipes out the world and He restarts everything with Noah, right? One person. It's like a funnel, right? In Babel, okay, God scrambles their language, He disperses them, and He restarts all of uh, 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 everything with diverse, pluralistic cultures. And so you see, it's like everything funnels down to Noah, and then after Noah, everything funnels, reverse funnels back out where God spreads everyone everywhere, okay? So it's a bit of a mirror image, like a parallel. But I want to show you... Um, I'll go through these two stories with you today in three blocks. Three blocks, okay? The first block is this. We're going to talk about the widespread sin. The sin that pushes people to the point of reset. Pushes God to the point that He would actually do a global um, heart factory reset on us, okay? To bring us back to a place where He can say, okay, let's start this all over again, right? Go back to update zero, right? Um, so that's the first one, the first block. The second block is we're going to look at the way he does his total resets, the heart behind the total resets, okay? And we'll deal with some of the controversial issues there. And finally, we're going to look at the civilization that God wants to create, the environment, the world environment God wants to have so that He can bring His covenant, so that He can bring His promise, and eventually, so that He can bring His Messiah, right? A lot of things going on. You guys doing okay? You guys doing okay? Alright, let's go into it. The widespread sin. In the flood, the primary widespread sin is violence. Okay, I'm going to show it to you in the text. But even before I show it to you in today's text, how many of you remember Adam, Eve have sons, Cain, Abel. What happens to them? Murder, right? Murder. Abel one day is, is offering a gift before God, right? Cain is waiting his turn probably to offer his gift before God too, right? And it just says, now there's no explanation, God favours Abel for the way, he, the, the, the way and the offering he gives. We don't know why. Is God playing, you know, being unfair with favouritism? Is with this or that? The text is absolutely silent, okay? Is Cain a bad guy? We don't know. All we know is God favours Abel's uh, 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 offering. Cain is seething. And then God says to Cain, hey, this murderous anger that is at you, this sin that has crouched on you, right? You can master it. Don't let it get over you. Don't let it get on top of you. Don't let it eat you from inside. You can master it. And uh, before we go on, I want you to know that if you are prone to outbursts of anger, you can master it. The power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in you is for the mastering of sin and darkness and wickedness and evil and everything that seeks to destroy. Now, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not wicked. I'm not evil. I just get angry and really angry and dysregulated sometimes. You can master it. That day, Abel could, Cain could have mastered it. He did not want to master it. And so he gave in. He let himself be filled with rage and in his rage, he slaughtered his brother, right? And so he goes off. Now, that's Cain. 
right? Murders Abel in the field. Four generations later, okay, Cain's descendant, among them, there is a man called Lamech, right? And Lamech murders someone who wounded him. So there's a scuffle, right? Lamech is wounded and disproportionately blows back. He murders that, that guy. There's a younger man than him, okay? And he goes back, tells his wife, I've murdered someone, you know, and I know they're going to want my life back for his life, okay? I'm going to proclaim this, right? My life, 77 lives. If they come and take me, we take 77 times more. In other words, the vengeance on people killing me shall be 77. And the 77, of course, is, it, can, it can be seen as symbolic, meaning utterly, totally, you know, complete vengeance on anyone who destroys me. Short of saying, essentially, that Lamech was a man who ruled his household, who governed his space and being sons of Cain, they would be the early warlords and kings of their day in violence, okay, and in great vengeance. Now, this is the background, okay? This is the world that is, the fallen world that is, uh, that, that's happening around them at this time. Now, I want to take you to the actual story of Noah. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, right? And they took as their wives any as they chose. Now, I just want to bring some clarity to this, okay? There are lots, there are several ideas about what this is and what this is, okay? Now, Cain goes out, okay? And then Lamech rules whichever clan that he rules, right? So some scholars believe that the sons of God here, okay, refers to the tyrannical ruling class. And the daughters of men refers to the peasant ordinary uh, 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 people. And so there was cross between the social rankings, okay? And then as a result of that, they are children, right? Now that's one way of thinking. Another way of thinking says that actually... These, dot, these were the sons of, um, of the good son of, um, of Noah, right? Shem, right? And then these were the daughters, okay, from the line of, of, of Cain. And then between the good family of God and the, and the wicked family of, uh, of, of, of men, then they start interbreeding and blah, blah. Now, of course, the one that you may have heard the most of is that these were actually angelic beings, Okay, angelic beings, okay, um, that somehow mated with human women, okay, and produced some kind of demigod, okay, of sorts, right? Uh, because it doesn't say demigod, but some kind of pseudo, not fully man, uh, ha having some kind of special part angel, part man type of creature, okay? Now, I'm not entirely convinced, okay, but I'm not entirely closed, okay, so that's, that's where I'm at, okay, and I think it's important that we can hold some of these things in tension, because the Bible is silent on exact, I don't know, ontology of these creatures, right, we don't know exactly how they are built and what, what they are from, so that's a bit of the background, you can do more research, what I do know is that 
there is more important, actually, more important than who is this sons of God? Who is this daughters of man, you know? And what are their children? Are their children around? Are they still around today? Did they die in the flood? Now, instead of that, I want you to see this pattern. This is a more important pattern, right? They saw and they took. Now, every time in your Bible, when you see they saw and they took, okay, it's not a good thing. It's not like, oh, I saw the ang pao and I took it, right? It's not quite like that. When David saw Bathsheba, he saw, same Hebrew words, he saw, he took, right? When, um, when the, there is a story of rape in, uh, among the brothers of Israel, uh, um, the, uh, of, of Joseph, uh, Judah's sister, Dinah, Dinah. There's a, Dinah is the, is the sister of, of, um, of the 12 tribes, of the 12 brothers, okay? She was raped, right? And the, it, and the words that were used was that the, the perpetrator saw that she was beautiful and took her, right? And so every time you see saw and took together in Hebrew, Old Testament, it is talking about some form of sexual conquest and violence okay you need to know this today we think that all oh, these kind of crimes are everywhere everybody's doing it anyway no when adam was given to eve to each other it was supposed to be a holy union they were supposed to lovingly uh, um, care and protect each other you know and i've described to you eve is supposed to be like the taken out from the rib cage right to protect and give structure to adam who would be in in some form the lead in that couple now all that has gone dysfunctional. I showed you Lamech, he had two wives. First instance of someone with two wives, right? And so the seeing and the taking that you see here is some form of violent act with no mutual consent, okay? So let, let's be clear about this. Now, the earth was corrupt, filled with violence, okay? And God said, I'm going to destroy this whole thing because all this is now filled with violence. Now, the text goes on to describe something and I just want to clear this part. Sometimes we ask, how many of you have heard of the Nephilim? Before today, you've heard of the Nephilim. Stretch your hand all the way out. Alright, cool. Alright, now, who are these Nephilim? Okay, the Bible actually describes them. The Nephilim, in brackets, giants, okay? Now, if you want today's uh, uh, sermon slides, and I think you should, okay, because there's going to be a lot of content. There's like more content here than I can actually technically fit into a sermon. So you can scan uh, the QR code on the chair in front of you and you can click the first slide and you should be able to get our sermon slides for today. Now, the Nephilim were, the, were on the earth in those days, comma, okay? So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, comma, okay? So they were. Who were the Nephilim? They... The, the word can insinuate some giants. They were around. And then the next part can be a little bit confusing. It says, and also afterwards. Okay, so they were on the earth in those days and they were also on the earth afterwards. In those days and after what, right? When it says here, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, oh, that incident, right? And they bore children to them, right? And so children were born to the sons of God and the daughters of men. Full stop. Okay? These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So bear with me, a little bit of an English class here. These refers to who? 
the produce of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Okay? Chegu Sarah is, uh, is sharp with her grammar, right? Okay? So these were... So the produce of the sons of God, daughters of men, were the, were the mighty men of old and the men of renown. Are those the Nephilim? It sounds like it could be. It sounds like if you can read it in a certain way, it could just be that. It could just be that the Nephilim were around in those days. And then it goes on to talk about sons of God, daughters of men, and their children were the mighty men. And it's possible from the language that he's just talking about this and then but the Nephilim were around in those days. It's possible. It could also be possible that these offspring is the Nephilim and they were around in those days. Okay, so now because there is, it's not clear again, it's not clear all we have is what we've got. Alright, now what I do want to point you to, okay, is that there is a flood. There is a flood that wipes out everything on earth. So there are always these questions like, oh, did the Nephilim survive? You know, were they, did they somehow manage to, to, to... Now, the only way the Nephilim could have survived if they were aquatic in nature, okay? Because the aquatic creatures did not perish in the flood. But that's, that's taking the, hy the hypothesizing very far. The reason why people ask if the Nephilim survive is because much later in the narrative, you hear about these giants called the Anakim. And the Anakim are related and connected to the story of David and Goliath. The G Goliath here stands not quite as tall as what you see in the, in the picture here. That's just an artist's imagination. But the Goliath was described as something like 12 foot tall. So if you take your one, sto one, one story high in your house, you know, one floor is about 12 feet, right? He would pretty much go near the ceiling, you know. Um, that's Goliath, right? And so, yeah, is it possible for humans to have some kind of growth uh, defect, something like that causes them to grow to that height? I don't know. I've heard it being said that it's possible, okay? So I'm not sure, and the evidence is not clear, that the Anakim descended from the Nephilim. If anything, because God is very clear that everything on earth was wiped out, everything, land creatures were all wiped out, okay? I think the safer posture, if I may use that, fra that phrase, okay, is that you should start with no connection, the Nephilim were wiped out, okay? Let's move on. Now, at Babel, so at the flood, what was the primary sin, widespread? It was violence. And I just want to say this before I move on. Jesus says that, okay, don't murder, right? Don't harm someone, right? But if you curse at someone in your heart, you have effectively committed murder on them, right? So you and I may not be like Cain or like Lamech, who would exact vengeance, you know, uh, at that level. But you and I can and have murdered others in our hearts. And I just want to say this as a pastor to every single one of us, that let us now for a moment just bring our own place of anger, murder, vengeance before God and allow Him into our hearts to reshape us, to take it away, to deal with that part of us and to renew us deep from inside of us, right? If you have, and I just sense that some of you may be struggling with, 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 a, a, with a hurt and an anger that you cannot let go. 
they've just not been able to forgive someone. If anything, when you close your eyes sometimes, you replay the scene again um, with a vengeful kind of satisfaction. You know, you replay it with a different ending, with a different thing that you would have done, you know, and, and you find some form of self-soothing by going through it over and over again. And if that is you, I want you to bring those thoughts and bring those postures before the Lord. Even right now, I'm going to pray for every single one of us. Father, I just pray that you will cause us deep in our hearts, the place of anger, the place of murder, even if it's just symbolic, the place of hatred and vengeance and inability to forgive. Father, I pray that for each of us who is struggling with these things, that you just cause us um, to receive and have your peace, Lord. And Father, we pray that you just give us a heart that can forgive over time. And Father, we pray that you teach us um, to, to have soft hearts, soft towards you, Lord God. And for every heart that is hardening, I pray over you right now. In Jesus' name, stop hardening and be soft towards the Lord. He is good. He is kind. And He will give you a new heart, a new heart that will love Him and, uh, and a new heart that will be yielded to Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, if the widespread sin of the flood was violence, the widespread sin at Babel, okay, was Two things, right? Pride and the refusal to spread out. So you may often have heard it described that what they wanted to do was they wanted to build a tower that could reach heaven so that they wanted to get into heaven on their own terms and by their own strength. Now, even though that is generally true of the fallen nature, it is not exactly what's in the text. Okay, because when the text says that they want to build a tower that reaches into the word is heavens, okay, and the word heavens here refers to the skies. It is the same word that is used for to saying that all the birds of the heavens, right? And it's saying that all the birds of the skies. It's not saying that there are also winged creatures in God's abode, you know, those birds, you know, it's not talking about that. It's saying, so the word heavens with an S is often used to describe the skies. That's what's being described here. It really is quite innocuous. Let's just build a tower that reaches high into the clouds and into the skies. But the rest of it is not innocuous. The rest of it is not, is it, it, something else. Now the whole earth had one language with the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of China and settled there. I just want to show you that this is not new. This need to move around and to settle in places is not new, right? They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stones and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men have built. Now, I'm just going to take this whole text and I'm just going to put it to the side for a moment, okay? And I want to show you two other parts of Bible from earlier. Remember Cain? Remember Cain, after he killed Abel, he went out? He went out and what he did was he built a city. And he named that city after his son, Enoch. So Cain built a city. What did God want his people to do? Be fruitful, be multiplied, and what? Spread out. So sinful fallen Cain goes out and he does the opposite. He builds a city where people cluster. 
Okay? Now, this is a motive. It's important to see, okay? Now, after Cain comes all the others until Noah and after Noah he had Ham and Ham was the one who Ham's up okay lah no. Ham is the one who who was not discreet okay Ham had a son Ham's name, son's name is Cush Cush fathered Nimrod and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh the beginning of his kingdom was Babel you're like really? I never knew this Genesis chapter 10 verse 10 Nimrod was the king of Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then, of course, he grew, right? He grew his kingdom and he had other, uh, he had other cities as well. Where? In the land of China. So actually, if you're there, whoa, so Babel already existed. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 is not sequential, okay? Um, chapter 10 is telling you genealogy stories, right? And little details about the genealogy. Essentially, chapter 10 runs ahead of chapter 11 because it's telling future genealogy stories. And then 11 pulls it back and says, let me tell you about this Babel, this Nimrod, this Shina. It stops naming Nimrod, but it starts naming Babel and the rest of the people around that project, okay? So let's jump in do it, right? Come, let us make bricks. Bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. What I want you to see, and I never saw this before this weekend, is that prior to the sinful desire to build this city and to build this tower comes a technological leap. There is a technological progress that takes place. They learn how to bake bricks and they learn how to make mortar to hold the bricks together. Once you learn how to make bricks which are even in shape, right? You can control the shape. Before that, you need stonemasons to cut and stones don't always cut evenly. So you are limited as to what you can build and how big you can build. Once you can build, cut bricks, and you can bake evenly shaped bricks and you can make these bricks hold together. What's next? You can. Come on, entrepreneurs, what's next? No, you can scale. You can scale. Once you can get two bricks to line up one on each other and you can turn two into 20, what's next? 200. And what's next? 2000. That's why when they are building a city, they realize that they, they don't just can build a city. With the new technology, they have to bake bricks and, and glue them with mortar. They can scale up. And that's what's happening. New technology leads to scaling all future projects. And then when you can scale, you know you can build something truly magnificent, truly glorious to behold. And you can make a name for yourself by the technology you have to make big things easily. That's the, that's the, if you think like a historian, if you think like someone who looks at civilizations, then when you see the story of Babel, you will see this. I want you to see this. Then, here comes the sin. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, okay? And let us make it, make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed. I want you to see there are four things happening here. There's build a city, build a tower. Make a name, 
Don't be dispersed. Right? These four things. Now, these four things correspond to each other. The city corresponds to don't disperse. Right? The tower corresponds to make a name. When they build a city, a city has walls. A city keeps people in. A city keeps people in from dispersing. Because the thinking is that if you can huddle, you can be safer. Right? You can be safe when you huddle. If you don't huddle, you're out there. You're at the mercy of whatever is out there. So build a city, don't disperse. Secondly, now that we can scale, let's build a tower. And the tower is going to be visible from all the faraway nations. They can see that tower, like the one in Dubai, like the one in KL, like the one in Shanghai. They can see that tower. And when they see it, they'll say, wow, those guys over there must be really great and mighty because they can build really great, mighty things. And this is part of our fallen nature. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make our name for ourselves so that people can look at us and be fearful, so that people can look at us and be in awe, so that people can look at us and be astounded, impressed by us. God is not impressed, by the way. Now, I know God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He sees everything. He knows everything. And the text almost ironically says, God came down to look at this temple, this building, as if to joke and say, you thought this temple was, this, this building was going to reach up into this heaven so that everyone can see it, as if to say, as if to say, okay, it's a literary form. I couldn't see it. It's so small. I can't see it. Let me come down to see it. So the text literally says, God came down to inspect this building thing. This little, thing. oh, now I see it, right? Now I see it, okay? As if to remind us that our grandest mega projects, our highest achievement, our most shining of accolades, really is God impressed? What, God, what impresses God, let me share this with you. What impresses God is when the world is filled with violence, that you are a man of peace, you are a woman of love and gentleness and kindness, and you are a peacemaker. Because God says that blessed shall be those who are peacemakers, they shall be like the Son of God. Amen? That's what impresses God's heart. That's what He's attracted to, right? And, and what impresses and, and, and stirs God's heart is when all around you, there, there are those who want to cluster and make great things for their own namesake, that God says, no, what stirs my heart is when you gather in order to make my name great. When you gather in order to make much of the one who gives breath to your nostrils every single moment. That is right-sizing God and right-sizing people. And God loves it when we are right-sized because He just wants so much to lift us up to be by His side when we are humble and contrite before Him. Amen? But most of the time, our hearts are full of ambitions, most of our times, our hearts are full of desire to make something big of ourselves. And in trying to make something much of ourselves, we end up with death and smallness and pettiness and eventually nothing. But for those who are prepared to die to themselves, die to their ambitions, die to, to, to the, the hopes of having grand things and magnificent reputation and all those things, for those of us who are prepared to die to those things, God lifts us up and upgrades us to sit and rule with Him in the heavenly places. And in so dying, we find life. 
And Jesus says this. He says, if you seek after life, you shall die, right? But if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you shall truly live, right? If you try to cling on to survival, Jesus says, no, because you're going to try to grasp and claw and, and, and scrape down everybody to make something of yourself and you end up with nothing. And you build a city, don't want to disperse, that's a sin because God wanted them to stay together, right? Don't want, God wanted them to spread out, right? When they build a tower to make a name for themselves, I just want to say this, right? God wants us to make much of Him and not of ourselves. But I want you to see another picture. I want to see another picture here. In the city, at the center of it is a tower. What is this a counterfeit of? Think about it. Did someone say something? Turn to your friend. Okay, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Turn to someone next to you. This is a counterfeit of something else. We've already seen it in one of the last two weeks. What is it? A city with a tower in the center is a counterfeit of some other picture we have seen. Yes! Yes! The city with a tower in the center is a counterfeit of the garden with the tree at the center. You see that now? You see that you need you see how you see how um, fallen our nature is that we want to keep on getting back our Eden? After being thrown out, they long for Eden again. They long for that thing again, but they will not go to Eden via, via God. They will go to Eden via their own strength of building, strength of thinking, strength of living, strength of survival, and they create, they recreate a counterfeit Eden in the image and the semblance of Eden, but it's not Eden. Amen? How many things we do today are counterfeits of the original? How many things we do today are us trying to approximate godliness, but we do it on our own terms and therefore they look like the best form of human, human flourishing, but actually it is just will not ever be good enough. Why? Because the fallen nature just causes all the good things we do eventually stretched out across time to decay and it will not last. It just will not last. Sometimes it doesn't just decay. Sometimes it becomes full of corruption and toxicity. Amen? But God wants us to long for Eden. Not this way. He wants us to long for Eden by turning back to Him and be prepared to live like Edenic people, not like people who live outside it. Widespread sin at that time. Violence in the time of Noah. The refusal to spread out and the desire to make a name. That pride, that God-absent pride to make a name for yourself. That was the widespread sin. And so... Because of that, the total resets, right? People ask, was that flood a global one or was that flood a local one, right? Now, there are people who say that the flood had to be global because God says He's going to fill the whole earth, right? He's going to fill all of the earth, all of the animals, which means it's going to be global, right? There are other people who say that, no, it doesn't really comport with scientific discovery. If you look at the geology, the, sed the water sedimentary stuff, you know, um, it doesn't really feel like it's more local. But if it's local, then it doesn't really comport with the scriptures, blah, blah, and, and it goes on. This is not too different from young earth, old earth that I talked about two weeks ago. Now, I just want to say this. Okay, 
Just so you understand how the text is written, God said to Noah, determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Every time you see the earth being read in this text, the Hebrew word is eretz, Y-E-R-E-T-Z. They use that word until today for the land in Israel, right? Yeretz Israel, right? Now, this word yeretz, okay, can mean the whole earth, but it can also mean the land. So you can read this as for the land is filled with violence. Okay, you can read this as the flood continued, okay, for 40 days on the land. Okay, and if you read it that way, you, it's possible, and that's why I don't want you to belittle those who are local flood, you know, uh, 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 who think it's a local flood. It can be read as the flood was on the land, not in the earth, right? Because the word Yeretz can mean two things, just like the word Yom can mean two things, right? Of course, if you read it as earth, then it definitely takes on a global flavour. I'm not going to square this for you because in my mind, at that time, they had probably not spread out throughout all of the land, throughout Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere, across the longitude and longitude anyway. So for them, global was probably, if you look at the spread of humanity, not global as we know it today. Global was probably... Still fairly local, right? Later you will see them describe um, that the different peoples move across as far as Sodom and Gomorrah, as far as, you know, uh, Gaza. It's like, hey, today you look at that, that's at that little patch of land, you know, that's as far as. So they actually had migrated, but their global was still quite local, so I don't feel the need to decide if the whole, you know, both hemispheres were flooded or not. What we do know and what's probably more important is to have a sense that the flood had permanent lasting effects on the geography, on the geology. And the new languages of Babel had permanent effect as well on ethnology, on linguistics, on sociology, right? Anthropology. Now, these resets are not soft resets. These resets are global shifting resets. Nothing is going to be the same after these resets. The whole of the way the land works will never be the same after Noah's flood. The whole of the way human culture interacts will never be the same after what happens in Babel. And so, what do we learn about the nature of God? God is not so shy, so sentimental, so soft or weak-willed that He is unable to perform global acts of resets. Now, you might think, wow, very scary. No, for the righteous, this should be a comforting thing, not a frightening thing. Because the natural way of the fallen world is to be, is to be drawn towards, we, we drift towards iniquity, violence, evil, wickedness and sin. And if entire civilizations keep drifting naturally towards evil and wickedness and violence and sin, should you not be thankful and comforted that God is not one who is so weak-willed and so, so soft that He is unable to perform a reset? If you are among the righteous, it should be comforting that God is prepared to reset everything for the sake of those who take after Him. Amen? So I don't want you to be fearful about these things. If anything, it is out of mercy that God resets the world from a 
course corrects the world from a path of certain doom, destruction to something better. Now, I just want to say this. Sometimes we carry these sentiments in our hearts. And human people will look at the, 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 the wickedness of the world and say, I wish we could clean this up. And sometimes they take that judgment into their own hands. And a film was made, probably the best film of all the films that was made like this, um, in the 1970s called Taxi Driver. How many of you are familiar with Taxi Driver, right? Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese film, and he, the character name is Travis Bickle, right? He's an outsider in this world. He drives a taxi in New York. He sees all this pimps and, and, and gangsters and all this really scum, he calls them scum, okay? And he wants to wipe all these things out. He's driving them in his taxi every day. He sees them every day, you know. Um, one scene, he stops his car, the guy goes up, you know, to his apartment, shoots his wife, and then comes back down to his car, and he has to drive people like that. He says, someday a rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. That's a Noah-type desire. He wants to wash the, the, the streets clean. He wants a Noah flood all over again. Except, at the end of the film, you know, because he wants to protect someone whom he's very dear of, you know, he goes on this gun-killing spree. Like, you hear it sometimes happening in some of the schools in America or in any other kinds of places. And where is it coming from? A desire to clean the world up? A desire to take justice into your own hands? A desire to be like a God? That's what Travis Bickle tries to do. Why is it relevant? Because today, it still happens. And this is not God's way. God says that vengeance is mine. I will do the cleaning up. And for all of us, our call is to make sure that we can come before God. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Amen? That's our part. Not to clean the world up in this kind of way, but to clean each other up by love, by gentleness, by humility and the ways of Christ. Amen? Just want to make a short detour. You know the story of Ham, okay? Um, seeing his father naked. When Abraham wakes up, he curses Ham, right? And he curses Ham this way. He says, your son Canaan, right? Okay, shall be cursed to be a slave of your brothers. Right? So he shall be a slave of Japheth and Japheth will live in the house of Shem. And so he is not just going to be a slave, he's going to be a slave of the slave. And I want to say this. At some point in Christian history, and this is why you should attend church history, by the way, because you learn a lot when you come for church history about the kind of mistakes we have made. And I'm going to flat out call this a mistake, okay? And bad theology. At some point in Christian history, we decided, we, I use we very loosely, we decided that Ham eventually became the people who live in Africa. And Shem and Japheth became the people of Europe and the white-skinned uh, 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 people of social rank in the Western world. Oh, and it says in our Bible, the ham shall be the slave of the, of, of the other two. And therefore, we have a part in our history of the world where Christians signed off on going to the African continent, to various countries, to buy human bodies, bring them back to the Western world, 
and enslave them. And it probably didn't begin with spiritual conviction. It probably began with just human greed. And human greed, and as Prince was just sharing with me yesterday in a reel, it's not just on the side of the Western powers. It's also the local kings and sometimes were selling their own people. So human greed and the fallen nature is everywhere. But later to justify this says that, oh, Ham. And then you will hear people say that this group went here, that group went there. It's not in the text. Okay, I just want you to be very clear. As far as where Ham went, okay, is Gaza, Sodom, Gomorrah, still in Middle East. Okay, so there's, and then the, where the brothers spread is not very far from that same space. So there's actually very little textual evidence that these guys became the Africans and those guys became the Europeans. It's not there in, the Bible, in your Bible text. And I, why am I calling this out? I'm calling this out because it's important for us to not allow pseudo-theology to lead us into ungodly postures because in Christ, Paul writes, in the kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Greek, woman or man, or slave or master. And therefore, this kind of attitude should have no place in a post-Pauline world, in a post-Jesus world. It should have no place. And yet, we managed to find some kind of pseudo-theology somewhere deep in the, in, the, in the subtext of Genesis and justify that. Not good theology. Sungai Bulo Church, we will not be hoodwinked by these things. Amen? We will not. Even if the people spread, even if the people spread, still Jesus in the kingdom. No, no Jew, no slave, no kingdom, no, no king, no master, no rank. The gospel levels everybody. Slave owner and slave. So that today we all come into the kingdom as one. Amen? Certainly no one is subhuman. So there is a total reset and then there is a way civilization is going to be. And I'm going to close not long from now. Remember this? The fall causes all kinds of chaos to happen here so that, so that God needs to reset everything. He's going to reset everything by bringing one man, Abraham, and that is the week after Chinese New Year. And he's going to make a covenant with this one man. This covenant is going to be cause Abraham's family to grow into a large tribe, a small nation, eventually a fairly powerful nation, and this nation is going to bump up against all the other medium-sized nations around them. They're going to bump up against some of the superpowers around them, but always with all a, a, a mixture of kind of like kind of like diplomatic tensions between all the nations around it. This is going to carry all the way to the anticipation of the Messiah where by that time Rome will be the superpower of their day and God is going to use that to do something with the church and cause His gospel to spread. Not yet. Not yet. And at this, So what is happening now? What is happening now is that God is making sure in ensuring that they do, that they do spread out don't cluster. Have many languages. Don't have one language. What God wants is He is dismantling our desire to build a single monolithic superpower. That's what God is doing. He is against the rise of a single monolithic superpower. And He will not have it. That's exactly why He looks at Babel and He says, look at them. 
right? With one language and with a godless unity, what they can do. If this is how the world becomes, one big monolithic superpower, and then he brings the covenant to one man, Abraham, and they rise to become a little kingdom, how shall this kingdom survive against that? And that is up to God, but that is not how God wants it to be. God wants them to bump up against many other medium-sized kingdoms, eventually grow strong and grow weak and get exiled and so on and so forth with diplomatic tensions all around them all the time. That's how God wants it to be. And therefore, He disperses them. Cain built a city. Lamech ruled in violence. Nimrod built Babel. But God does not one cities built here. If you, mod, if you take a model of a city, this is a model of Babylon, right? At the time of the exile. A city has walls for safety. A city has social, different spaces for social class and division. You see how much empty space they have here? And you see how clustered everyone else is? Cities create social rank. And cities, of course, cause populations to cluster together. God does not want them to live in a city. God wants them to trust Him. Spread out. I have caused all the animals to be afraid of you. There's nothing to fear. I will protect you. I be your walls. Trust Him to protect. Christ alone, no other social rank. And God wants them to get out of the city so that population can spread throughout the world. So that what the glory of God may cover the earth as the waters clothe the sea. Amen. And that is God's heart. That is God's heart for His people. They would not have it. They wanted to cluster. They wanted to do things their way. And as a result of this today, I want to show you as we are coming to a close. I want to show you that you cannot be a citizen of Babylon and be a citizen of the city on a hill at the same time. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And He brought peasants up onto that, onto that mountain, that sermon on the mount. He brought peasants, He brought ordinary people up onto that place. No rank, no glory, no glamour. And He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what kind of city is the city that Jesus wants to grow? Not the city like the cities of Babylon. Jesus wants to grow a city that trusts Him, the people who shine light for Him. A city on a hill where people can see, not to see the power and strength of Babel from afar, like, wow, those guys must be great. But a city on a hill that shines light so that from far people can look and what? They see your light and what? Praise your Father in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount, those two lines about you are a light of the world, city on a hill, you don't get covered, you put on a stand, you shine like a city at night so that everyone can look from afar and see and praise the God of your people is a reversal picture of Babel. Where in Babel, people wanted all the world to see them and make much of them. God says, you will not be that kind of city. And you will eventually one day inherit the good city, New Jerusalem, will come down. So church, you cannot be a citizen of Babylon and be a citizen of New Jerusalem at the same time. You will have to choose. There will be no single monolithic superpower. It will be bad 
for itself. You will harm yourself. You will grow proud. You will grow arrogant. You will walk away from God. That is not how God wants it to be. And these are not the conditions under which God wants to bring about Messiah. Can I have the worship theme on stage? These are not the conditions under which He wants to bring about Messiah. He wants to bring about Messiah and the people of God are not ready for Rome a long way more. He's going to grow them, prepare them, and bring them into maturity until Rome. And even then, Rome was not a monolithic superpower the way uh, um, uh, Babel would have ended up being. And in so doing, He's going to cause the church to be able to spread out now. I want us all to just take stock for a moment. Because sometimes God will do hard resets in our lives. And even in the book of Acts, even in the book of Acts, you see the disciples being told in Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Did they move? In chapter 2, had they moved? By chapter 3 and 4, had they moved? 5 and 6, had they moved? 6 and 7, had they moved out of Jerusalem? The answer is no. The reverse verse in chapter 8 verse 1 there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and from there because of the persecution they were forced to move out and scatter where? Judea, Samaria eventually to the ends of the earth God wants us to not cluster He wants us to scatter He wants us to go go to the ends of the earth and that is the story of Paul and the apostles go Go, don't cling to Jerusalem. Get out there, bring the good news to the far-flung places. Go, don't huddle in your holy huddle. Go. And he's been wanting this ever since Cain built his first city. He's been saying, no, scatter, I will be with you. Go. Ever since, ever since they started building Babel, he scattered them. He said, go, heart reset, go, get out. Church, every single one of us, with the example shown to us here in the book of Acts, even the apostles needed some kind of godly action from outside to strike and scatter them. Amen? Why? Because God will be most glorified when all the nations bring their praise. When all the languages bring their praise. Not just when one nation brings the praise, but when all with many different kinds of languages everyone brings their praise for the book of revelation says and i want us all to close our eyes and just hear this in the text because we're not studying anymore i want to move i want your heart to be moved by what god wants us to do here in the book of revelation it says and after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne before the Lamb clothed in white with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and you see here they are, they are clothed in white and this is another way of saying give us clean hands give us pure hearts 
Let us not lift our soul to Babylon. Let us not lift our soul to wickedness and violence and, and, and envy and anger or to our pride to make something of ourselves. Let us not lift our soul to another. Give us clean hands, pure hearts. I want you to remain seated as the worship team leads us into this chorus. But I want you to sing this as your prayer. Amen. For God to come and give you clean hands. And I have the team hand out the communion emblems. And as you await for the emblems to be passed around, I want you to hold your hands before you. And we just sang, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. And in the place of your hands, I want you to know whose hands had to pay the price to give us clean hands, pure hearts. It was the hands of Jesus Christ, whose hands, very own hands, had to suffer the nailings. Rusty nine-inch nails, maybe. This thick, this big. Smashed into his hands. And he did that so that you and I can turn away from Babylon and turn to New Jerusalem, be a city on a hill, a different kind of gathering. And we will be a kind of gathering that gathers on the Lord's Day and then scatters every Monday till Saturday to bring the good news, the gospel and the way of Christ to all the places that are still in darkness and to gather again to be refueled, recharged, refired, and to be scattered again. And we will be that kind of people. We will be that kind of city. Until God gathers us into New Jerusalem once and for all, we will be that kind of city. The city God wanted us to be. A city that is dynamic and moving and living and breathing, who do not contain its people and its populace so that we can huddle and be our own strength but a city that's constantly going out, going out into the world. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, your own ends of the earth. To carry what? To carry the love of Christ. To carry the ways of our God. To carry the word of His salvation. To carry the Evangelion, the, the God-saving, life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be that city, church. Because God has reset all of us too many times for us to keep going down the way of Babylon if you're holding the emblems in your hands and the song says give us clean hands I want you to know that the very emblems in your hands signify the very thing that makes those hands cleansed and by those hands today you can hold the emblems that signify the very thing that makes your life clean and what made those things clean? The hands of Jesus, punctured by nails, crucified on a cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the food that is before us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can celebrate life, celebrate fellowship, and enjoy each other's face, because in each of us is the image of the living God. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.